0: The same robot that found the Titanic sub is back at the wreckage site The Lead starts right now. What went so tragically wrong, causing the implosion that killed five people on that voyage to see the Titanic wreckage? First on CNN, a new mission today for that remote vehicle that discovered the sub debris. Plus, a CNN exclusive, Fake electors compelled to testify as a special counsel investigation looking into efforts to overturn the 2020 election heats up. And in the shadow of Trump, 2024 Republican hopefuls converge on a conservative conference and try to separate themselves on one of the most divisive issues of this election cycle. Welcome to The Lead, I'm Abby Phillip, in for Jake Tapper here in Washington.
1: And I'm Anderson Cooper in St. John, Newfoundland, where the Titan sub started its ill-fated journey just one week ago today. Now, this afternoon, the Canadian government announced it's launching an investigation into the implosion of the sub, which killed all five people on board. The Titan's mothership is set to arrive back here this port in St. John's uh, late tonight or early, early tomorrow morning. The Polar Prince took the sub out to sea and lowered it into the water before the Titan lost communications, as you know, an hour and 45 minutes into that dive to see the Titanic. The company whose remote-operated vehicle, the ROV, discovered the debris yesterday has told CNN that another mission to the debris site is underway today. That information could help investigators ultimately figure out a timeline and a cause of the tragic accident, although that may take some time. That investigation will likely be aided by data from the U.S. Navy, which detected noises consistent with an implosion on Sunday that information was determined at the time to be not definitive, seen as Miguel Marquez is with me now here on the scene. Um, so there's a, another mission to the debris site. It seems unlikely that they would actually be able to bring anything up at this stage.
2: That would be a much more tricky and difficult thing for them to do, it sounds like. They do have gear to do it, but it would it would mean getting cabling gear down there and then yanking it up. The subs they have down there right now do not have the capability to do that. They are trying to finally map it out to understand the dynamics of that implosion hoping for some idea this as the canadian transportation safety board announces its own official investigation of this tragic incident a day of mourning flag at half staff arose for each victim of the titan he was this big
3: lovable guy who's a prankster and uh but he cared so much about his family
2: John Pascal speaking about Paul-Henri Nargiolet, his stepfather, experienced deepwater diver known as Mr. Titanic for the number of dives he made to the ship.
3: And Honestly, when, um, when he told me he was going back out for this expedition, uh, when I saw him in May, um, I really honestly didn't think twice about it. I just said, OK, great, you know, have fun, be safe, and I'll, I'll see you in
2: July. The implosion of the Titan, underscoring the controversial design of the deep water sub and the materials, carbon fiber and titanium. It had reached the Titanic several times before, but the ocean at those depths? Unforgiving. This device was built much different than most deep diving
4: submersibles in that instead of using a sphere, which is very strong, under pressure, uh, they instead used two hemispheres on each end and then a cylinder in between made out of carbon fiber. And it looks like it was that portion made
2: out of carbon fiber that failed. The world of deep water submersibles, small, very close, and highly specialized, making the rounds in that community a possible last transmission from P.H. Nargile to the mothership, the Polar Prince. The other thing that I heard was that uh, PH
4: had uh, contacted the surfer ship and said there was a problem. We're dropping weights and surfacing immediately. Now, I can't verify that, but that to me meant uh,
2: something really happened very quickly. Most of the ships participating in the massive search and rescue mission now returning to home port. Some still on the scene, mapping the debris field, looking for clues in the shadow of the Titanic. Trying to understand with certainty what caused this latest tragedy in this isolated corner of the Atlantic. So now it is not only the Polar Prince, that mothership that is coming back to here at St. John's, it looks like several other ships are returning here, other ships returning to their home ports in the US, but others will stay out there for the next week or so gathering data and possibly, maybe, if they can figure it out, uh, pull up some of that uh, debris down there to figure out what exactly caused this implosion. Anderson.
1: Miguel, thanks. I want to bring in Andrew Norris. He is a retired uh, Coast Guard captain. Andrew, I appreciate you joining us. This debris field is nearly 13,000 feet under the water. We know the, the larger field is about 1,600 feet from the bow of the Titanic, according to Coast Guard. It's pitch black. It's freezing cold. How do you go about mapping debris in these kind of conditions with the vehicles they have on site?
5: First of all, thank you for inviting me here today. As with everything associated with this uh, search and uh, and associated activities, it's going to be extremely difficult. Operating at those depths, there's not many uh, bits of equipment or gear that could even do it. Uh, Those pieces of gear will have Probably uh, some uh, visual, so there'll be cameras with uh, lights. But at that depth, there's no ambient light, so you can only the field of vision is only what's illuminated by the lights. And then they'll also be equipped with uh, some sort of uh, side scan sonar or something of that nature that will send out a sound signal, which will then be retrieved, analyzed, and uh, and then conclusions drawn from uh, what the uh, sonar signals says.
1: To to finally understand, though, exactly what caused the implosion, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, do you need to bring up pieces of of the hull, pieces of the craft? And to to actually bring that up, uh, how long is something, an operation like that?
5: Yeah, so the uh, casualty investigation of this nature, uh, so I heard that Canada has convened a marine board uh, and uh, so an investigation of the, this nature is ultimately going to attempt to determine the cause of the casualty as much as possible. Uh, so uh, in that case, uh, for example, parts of the hull uh, that might be able to uh, indicate where the fault occurred, where the the actual implosion site was that could give some clues as to uh, the issues with the material or issues with with the construction uh, so uh, there is some use for the uh, actual uh, shards the shreds of debris also uh, there is uh, information that uh, there were some sensors hull sensors that were, uh, on this uh, submersible and, and so Ideally, those aren't black boxes, I don't believe, in, in, as we conceive them with airplanes or otherwise, but nonetheless, yeah. those sensors could perhaps have some information and they would uh, certainly, I think, be looking to retrieve those to glean whatever information it is that they might be able to get.
1: Um, uh, you were in the U.S. Navy as well. A senior official told CNN that the Navy detected that an acoustic signature, which was, they said was consistent with an implosion on Sunday, in the area, the general area where the Titan was diving. They determined it was not definitive. Um, apparently that information was immediately, according to the, the, the officials sent to the incident commander. Who would make the decision whether or not to release that information? Because they didn't release that information to the public, and yet they later on released information that banging sounds or some sort of sounds had been heard. Who would decide that, that how information is released?
5: Well, with an incident command system like that that was stood up, there is a uh, public affairs component to it, but I would imagine that decision was made at the very highest levels of the uh, incident command. And uh, they were faced with, I think, very difficult circumstances with that information. With that information, they probably had 95% certainty from the start that uh, it had imploded, but nonetheless. The information wasn't definitive and uh, there was a chance that the people were still alive. And so they had to make a, a, a difficult decision, not only in terms of continuing with the uh, search, but also in terms of how the information is managed. There's very much a public affairs component to these uh, types of things. And also, uh, you know, there's the families, friends, and loved ones of the people that are aboard. And uh, so how the information is dealt with is, uh, is
1: uh, is a, a difficult question. Yeah, uh, Andrew Norris, I appreciate you being with us. Thanks very much. Joining me now here uh, is Titanic diver and uh, expert Larry Daly. He was also friends with Paul Henry uh, Norgay, who uh, lost his life on the Titan sub. Larry, I appreciate you being with us. I'm yeah. so sorry. Oh, you're welcome, Andrew, Under sorry. these circumstances, um, <clears throat> w- what was what was Paul Henry like?
4: Uh, Ph was a really good friend of mine. Um, you know, I met him uh, 25 years ago in St. John's when uh, I was involved with Expedition 98. And uh, I show up to, you know, to help out, do logistics for the ship that was here at port with the submersible it that they were using, which was the nod uh, the French uh, ephemer group that was their sub. And when I went on board to get introduced here, uh, PH was the co-expedition leader. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, like, we introduced ourselves, immediately became friends and worked together on that expedition over a couple of weeks and then several after that. So uh, he's always been a mentor to me as well too. So this is a really hard time for me.
1: What do you make of of what we know now of what happened?
4: Uh, They're just, literally, there's so much going on. Uh, You know, I guess we'll know more as they scan the seafloor with the ROVs. Uh, They have very capable assets. Uh, The expedition I first worked with, uh, PH in 98, was actually going out, doing science, and recovering artifacts. Mm. So, you know, we're down two and a half miles down with uh, one submersible and picking up teacups on the seafloor.
1: He was, he, uh, Paul Henry, was involved with the retrieval of thousands of artifacts yes. uh, over the years.
4: Yeah, many. I think there was over 5,000 collected in the last uh, probably 30 plus years or more for uh, conservation and uh, you know an exhibits. So they
1: have the capabilities of bringing up small, delicate objects from those desks. It's just a question of getting the equipment on site and the and the desire to do that?
4: Well, in the uh, 96, they went out to get the big piece. The big piece is a piece of the hull that's now an exhibit, I think, in the Luxor in Las Vegas. So that was down that deep, a big piece of steel. So they got it up so far in 96, they dropped it in lower water, and then back in 98 they went out on that expedition. They actually raised that big, you know, several thousand pound, I think it was piece, or mm. thousand pounds anyway, got it to the surface using what I remember they used out there. It was diesel ballast inflatable bags that lifted it to the surface to recover it. So technology 25 years ago was great. We're in 2023, I can't see any issue getting as much as they can.
1: Yeah, uh, well, listen, I, I'm so sorry for, for the loss of your friend.
4: Yeah, I appreciate it. thank
1: yeah. you. I uh, wish you the best. And we'll obviously continue to, to follow this, Larry Daley. Uh, I had a closer look at the red flags from Oceangate. I'll speak with an engineer who raised concerns about this, uh, this submersible back in 2018.
0: And also on the lead, the 2020 election is back in the crosshairs, this time fake electors given immunity in exchange for testimony in the special counsel investigation. Plus, the strain on states seen now as safe havens for abortion one year since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade.
1: We're back from St. John's with more in our world lead and the catastrophic implosion of the sub that killed five people on a voyage to view the Titanic.
0: That's right, Anderson. Uh, Right now, investigators are beginning to look at what caused this implosion. And there's one big question. Could OceanGate be faulted for this tragedy? CNN's Gabe Cohen is with us. So, Gabe, you've been learning all about the scrutiny that this company was under before this dive. What are you hearing?
6: Yeah, and, Abby, it is a long list of concerns that were raised even before all of this unfolded. We have this 2018 letter written by the head of a submarine organization uh, who raised concerns. This was for Stockton Rush, really questioning the experimental approach, as he put it to Titan, uh, and that it could have serious consequences. Specifically, they were concerned that the vessel hadn't gone through independent testing and it wasn't certified by an industry group. And then there are these two former employees who raised concerns about the Titan's carbon fiber hole while the structure, while Titan was actually being built. And look, Stockton Rush said again and again, Abby, in interviews that uh, the vessel was safe, that they had gone through the proper testing, and they even touted these partnerships. Uh, NASA, the University of Washington, Boeing, saying that that gave them uh, credit, really. It showed how safe it was. But those so-called partners have started distancing themselves from OceanGate in recent days. We know both Boeing and the University of Washington have flat out denied partnering with Titan. UW tells CNN OceanGate used their testing tanks for Titan, but no UW researchers were actually involved, and they didn't validate any of the OceanGate equipment. And then Boeing firmly told CNN the company was not a partner on Titan and did not design or build it, declining to comment on it any further. And then NASA, uh, whose collaboration rush really frequently raised, told CNN that they consulted on materials and manufacturing process for the uh, submersible, but did not actually conduct any testing and manufacturing. And they certainly didn't give the vessel any sort of approval. So, No surprise that you would see some of these uh, folks starting to backtrack a little bit, but really a firm stance.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's still stunning uh, and really very telling what some of those statements say and what they don't say. Gabe Cohen, thank you very much for that. Anderson?
1: Yeah, and the language that the company was using was very sort of vague about their their so-called partnerships. We wanted to get a closer look at OceanGate and some of the red flags raised in the past. Last night I spoke with filmmaker and deep-sea explorer James Cameron, the director for the movie Titanic. Obviously, he's made more than 30 dives to the Titanic wreckage and gone three times deeper even than the Titanic site in another uh, dive. Listen to what he believes is the danger of using carbon fiber composite in a vessel such as OceanGate's Titan sub.
4: We always understood that this was the wrong material for submersible hulls because with each pressure cycle, you can have progressive damage. But even in my own sub, which had a steel hull, I knew that if I, if I dove several, two or three times, it was probably good to go because you can cycle steel hundreds of times, if not thousands of times. But that's not the case with composites.
1: Joining us is Bart Kemper. He's an engineer who, along with a dozen other experts in the submersible craft industry, raised concerns in 2018 about how OceanGate's Titan vessel was made and warned that the company's, quote, experimental approach could result in what they called catastrophic uh, outcome. Uh, Bart, I appreciate y- you joining us. Um, you know, you hear James Cameron talking about the sort of the repeated use and perhaps kind of degradation over time of this this uh, carbon composite material. Is it likely that that is what occurred here? And had it gone through, had this gone through years of, of testing, a lot more elaborate sort of you know industry testing as you and others had, had recommended or raised questions about, would those concerns have been lessened? Would that have been worked out?
7: Yes, Anderson. The deal is that the standard of care is using codes and standards. The work that's already been worked out Uh, we often say codes and standards are written in blood because all the lessons learned the hard way are captured and we make updates. This is decades and decades of work with people from all over the industries working together to develop these codes and standards. And separately, but reinforcing this is using a jurisdictional or a third party oversight. In this case, it would be classification societies. The argument was by by Stockton Rush that he wanted to do more innovation and he wanted to do something different. That's not a wrong idea, but when you introduce new technology and new innovations, you also increase the uncertainty. And that's where you're supposed to be using a process called validation and verification to address that. So it's it's not that necessarily that, because steel can have cyclic failures and there's other high-end applications that use carbon fiber, it's all in the details. And we don't have those details.
1: James Cameron made the point with me that, you know, innovation is one thing, and he certainly has done a lot of innovative work under the sea and pushed boundaries and not gone through uh, some uh, safety, uh, you know, industry protocols on testing on vehicles he himself has designed and that he himself uh, has used to go down to extremely deep depths. Uh, The point he made, though, is he would have never brought a a passenger on board a vessel like that. do you think it's appropriate to bring one thing is you know experimental research and pushing the boundaries for science and another thing to bring bringing paying passengers. Do you think that's appropriate on an experimental craft like this?
7: Well, and that's actually a matter for the jurisdictional authorities to look at because they were classing all the people going down as mission specialists. They were not classing them as passengers. You're absolutely right. once you're taking on passengers that puts you in a different classification, even in international waters. However, what was being offered publicly by Ocean Gate was these were not passengers, these were mission specialists. So there's that issue. Uh, everyone has an opinion about it, but that's the official stance of the organization to, that, that's a dispute that's gonna be interesting to see how that resolves.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's one thing to give somebody a uniform and a patch and call them a mission specialist and, you know, have them out there for several days. Uh, And it's another thing to actually have somebody who's really trained and knows all the risks taking the going into these vessels. Bart Kemper, I appreciate you being with us. Um, We're going to have an hour long look at this underwater tragedy. I'll host the whole story Sunday night at 8 Eastern here on on CNN. Abby?
0: Yeah, Anderson, and next on the lead, the investigation into efforts to overturn the 2020 election. What new activity in that case may signal after a year of very little movement?
1: I'm Anderson Cooper, live from St. John's, where the Titan Sub began its journey that ended in tragedy. Today, Canada's Transportation Safety Board launched its own investigation, looking into the implosion and into the Polar Prince, the support vessel that carried the Titan Sub out uh, from this port for the expedition. I'll have more from, uh, from St. John's Abbey coming up.
0: We'll be right back with you, Anderson, in just a few minutes. But in our Law and Justice lead, a CNN exclusive in the special counsel's probe into January 6th. Sources say that at least two fake electors have received limited immunity in exchange for their testimony to a federal grand jury here in Washington. Now this comes after a year of very little movement in that fake electors portion of the investigation. And sources say that this new action could signal that prosecutors are nearing a charging decision. CNN's Paula Reed, who is one of the reporters who broke this story, and CNN legal analyst Elliot Williams, joined me now. Paula, what do we know really right now about the deal that special counsel Jack Smith has given or offered to these uh, electors in exchange for their testimony.
8: So the fake elector scheme, this was one of the more complicated aspects of January 6th. This was a plan to try to reverse the outcome of the 2020 election by assembling these slates of fake electors who had pledged their support to former President Trump. It involves a sprawling cast of characters, many of whom are local GOP officials, folks in Trump's orbit. But now, the fact that they're granting them this limited immunity in order to testify to really nail down this particular aspect of the January 6th investigation, it does suggest that they may be nearing charges on this part of the January 6th probe. And we know the January 6th side of the special counsel investigation It is far more complicated, it is more sprawling, and we've always expected that it would take much longer than the Mar-a-Lago investigation.
0: The the January 6th investigation that the special counsel is doing is also now coming after there was a congressional probe. And uh, in the congressional probe, the fake electors' plot was not a huge part of what they were looking into. What do you think is the significance of Jack Smith diving in here?
3: Well, there's a lot of significance. Number one, it looks like he's gathering evidence uh, and they're moving along. Now, it's important to note it doesn't necessarily mean that Donald Trump himself will or could eventually be a defendant in the case Mm. because, uh, again, given the amount of time it's taken them to investigate, it's clear that it's sprawling and there are a number of people being investigated, um, including and possibly on up to the president. What it seems that uh, they could not have gotten this evidence out of other people or or from other places, they had to uh, extend this grant of immunity to these witnesses, it does seem, as Paul had said, they are moving along and we'll get somewhere soon.
0: So the uh, charges in the classified documents case, Paula, uh, really only involved Trump and Walt Notta, his uh, body man, if yeah. you will. But could there be a larger pool of people who are imperiled here in a January 6th probe?
8: Absolutely. Because, again, this is such a complicated case. They're looking at not only the actions around Election Day leading up to January 6th, after January 6th, efforts to pressure the states, the fake electors uh, raising money. There were so many aspects, so many people involved in all of these different alleged schemes. And a lot of it was done very publicly. So based on our reporting, we know some people that have been asked, have been focused, focused of questions that have been asked before the grand jury are Rudy Giuliani. Remember, he was a key player in a lot of these efforts. Uh, Sidney Powell, one of former President Trump's former attorneys, and former Justice Department official Jeffrey Clark. And to Elliot's point, the big question a lot of people have is, well, what about former President Trump? And based on our reporting right now, it's not clear if he's a target, but we know that witnesses have been asked about him, about his actions, uh, what he was saying, what he was doing leading up to January 6th, on January 6th, and after. But at this point, it's just unclear if he will be charged, but there's some other folks who probably aren't sleeping very well tonight.
0: Yeah, and Elliot, one other aspect of this, according to our reporting, is prosecutors looking into uh, potential financial crimes, money laundering, the raising of millions of dollars off of these election lies. Do you think that that could be a source of legal peril if you lied and raised in order to raise money?
3: I think it's a particular source of legal peril, number one, Abby, because it's sort of straightforward to prove. You just have to prove the untruth, uh, that the untruth then went into an email or a solicitation and that you sent it to somebody else. That's wire fraud. That's potential mail fraud. And a lot of these questions around January 6th are actually far more complicated when you're dealing with when a candidate for office makes a statement, how do you charge him based on protected? This is none of that. This is simply raising money off of lies. That's fraud. Uh and also potentially campaign finance uh, violations far more straightforward to prove and a great source of peril for the president possibly.
0: All right. Well, Paula Reed and Elliott Williams, thank you both very much. Have a great weekend. And ahead for us, a woman told CNN that she traveled overnight hundreds of miles from her home in secret from her family for a specific procedure. Why she says she had no other choice. tomorrow will mark one year since the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade and abortion rights are front and center in both sides of the campaign trail. Right now, President Biden and Vice President Harris are meeting with key reproductive groups here in the nation's capital to mark the anniversary of the Dobbs decision as Democrats continue to use abortion restrictions to motivate their voters while across town. At the Faith and Freedom Coalition, Republican presidential hopefuls are running to the right of Donald Trump on the issue of abortion. CNN's Jessica Dean is here with us. So Jessica, you've been at Faith and Freedom all day. What yep. have they been saying?
9: It was really interesting to see this broad spectrum at Faith and Freedom, Abby. And, and we've watched this play out over the last year since the Dobbs decision, as Republicans have really struggled to kind of coalesce around an idea and a, a, moving, a message moving forward for what comes next in the abortion fight. And so uh, we're seeing that play out in this 2024 field continues to get larger by the day. We heard from former Vice President Mike Pence, who's been one of uh, the contenders that's leaned he- the most heavily into this messaging. And today, he called for a 15-week federal ban, and he called on all of his rivals to do the same. I'll let you listen to more.
4: Some you will hear from at this very podium will say that the Supreme Court returned the issue of abortion only to the states, and that nothing should be done at the federal level. Others will say that continuing the fight to life could produce state legislation that's too harsh. Some have even gone on to blame the overturning of Roe versus Wade for election losses.
9: And it's interesting to hear him use the word harsh there, Abby. His former running mate, former President Donald Trump, has yet to be pinned down on anything about a federal ban. He really has not come out directly and said if he would support that or not. He was asked about the six-week abortion bill that Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, another 2024 rival, signed in Florida earlier this year. And that's when the former president said that some in the pro-life community had called that harsh. DeSantis pushed back against that and said that he really found it to be humane that he believed it was the right thing to do. One more thing that we noticed today is that Governor DeSantis spoke last in this whole co- cohort of people that were speaking. We're going to hear uh, from the former president tomorrow, uh, President Trump. But he did his normal his normal stump speech, and he did talk about the six-week ban, but only briefly. And again, he was talking to a large crowd of evangelicals. So yeah. This was really the crowd to do that with.
0: That's really incredibly notable. And also, to add to what you said about what Mike Pence said, he was also referring to Trump there when right. he talked about... Uh, people blaming the, uh, as he calls it, the pro-life movement for election losses. That was about Trump too. Jessica Dean, thank you very much for that report. And since last year's Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe, 14 states have banned or severely restricted abortions, mostly in the South, meaning that abortion seekers have had to travel hundreds of miles to try to get that procedure. CNN's Kyung Law reports now from a key safe haven state of Kansas.
9: What else are you going to do? Where else are you going to go?
10: It's a road she doesn't want to travel, yet she has no other choice. You have to drive like over 800 miles from Texas
9: just to get any kind of assistance.
10: She's driven 12 hours overnight to get here. From her home in Houston to the Planned Parenthood Clinic in Kansas City, Kansas. The closest clinic she can legally obtain an abortion. I understand, you know, the Bible. I am Christian. The 35-year-old woman asked us to conceal her identity. No one in her family, including her abusive former partner, knows she left Texas, where abortion is completely banned with very limited exceptions. She wants you to know what life is like a year after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. And you have three kids already? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do. They're great, but they are three kids, and it's a lot. So well, I can't continue to,
9: you know, I don't know, get more behind.
11: Hi there. Oh. I'm Dr.
10: Sandoval. We're going to do your ultrasound, if that's OK. Because of the crush of appointments in Kansas, she had to wait three weeks for hers. Her plan? Drive home right after the abortion.
11: Coming from us from far away. Texas. Oof! I'm sorry.
10: But she learns she's too far along in her pregnancy for what the clinic can give her
11: today. And we stop doing one-day procedures at about 18 weeks, and we're beyond that. Oh my God! No. I know. I'm sorry. And I know you're already facing all these
9: barriers. You have no idea.
11: Unfortunately, this is the new world that we live in right now, and this is the reality that we have to take our patients through. The new world since the fall of
10: Roe has upended abortion care, especially in Kansas. Voters in the Republican-controlled state stunned the country last August, rejecting a proposed state constitutional amendment keeping abortion legal and keeping abortion services available at Planned Parenthood Great Plains in Kansas.
11: Kansas is really the main kind of center point of a lot of the patients coming out of the South. We're their first access point. The majority of our patients are coming from Oklahoma and Texas right now.
10: Dr. Sandoval is seeing 47 patients today. A typical day since the laws changed.
11: I wish we could see more. To be honest, we're really not meeting the demand. Um, Right now at PPGP, we are sending about, we are only able to see about 15% of the patients that call us for an appointment. I'm sorry that, you know, their decisions and their futures determine upon where they live and, you know, the money that they have access to. That's frustrating.
9: A whole
10: 24 hours and I've accomplished nothing and that's just drive time. What happens to you now?
9: (laughs) I go home and I'm in the same predicament that I was in when I left and broke, (laughs) more broke than I was, so.
10: What are you gonna do?
9: I haven't even gotten that far,
10: I don't know yet. You're running out of time. I am, yeah. Uh, We've since connected with the woman in that story. She says she does have an appointment for next week here in Kansas. She's just not sure if she's going to be able to come back because of her job and because of the struggle with child care. Now, Abby, we did just get some news from the California Department of Public Health just a short time ago. They released some numbers about the state of abortions here in the state of Kansas, and it very much mirrors what we saw in that clinic Those women from out of state driving into Kansas seeking an abortion, more than double the women here in Kansas who try to get an abortion, who do get an abortion. And the state that is leading all the others in coming into this state, Texas. Yeah. Abby.
0: Kyung, a really critical part of this story. Thank you very much for bringing that to us. And coming up next, another tragedy at sea, how some survivors are contradicting government officials after a boat full of migrants sank off of the coast of Greece.
1: We are back from St. John's, the site where the Titan started its ill-fated journey. As the investigation picks up here, a search for answers is happening for another deadly sea disaster, this one in the Mediterranean, where more than 700 migrants were crammed on a boat that sank last week off the coast of Greece.
0: And the testimonies from survivors depict chaos and desperation. An investigation by CNN's Jemana Karachi raises some questions about the statements from Greek officials about what actually led to this tragedy. The desperate, exhausting
12: wait for the promise of a new life in Europe. These Pakistanis crammed into a small room by smugglers in Libya. Some of them believed to be among the hundreds presumed dead. These last images before they embarked on their ill-fated journey. About 750 refugees and migrants were packed into this fishing vessel bound for Italy before it capsized off the coast of Greece. Only 104 survived, and with them the harrowing accounts of what they'd been through.
7: I can still hear the voice of a woman calling out for help. You would swim and move the floating bodies out of your way.
12: The Syrian survivor spoke to us from Greece. He asked for his identity to be concealed for security reasons. His and other accounts obtained by CNN not only contradict the official Greek version of events, but point to fault on the part of the Greek Coast Guard. Greek authorities who watched and were in communication with the boat for an entire day insist that it was not in distress and refused assistance. Our investigation tells a very different story. Just before 1 p.m. on June 13th, the boat was first spotted by the EU's border patrol agency Frontex, which says it notified Greek authorities of a, quote, heavily overcrowded fishing vessel. Those on board were in distress, lost at sea with no food or water for days, according to survivors and activists in touch with the boat throughout the day. At about 7 p.m., an activist in Italy recorded one of the calls capturing the horror on board. As activists repeatedly relayed calls for a rescue to authorities... Two merchant vessels approach the boat, instructed by the Greek Coast Guard to provide the boat with food and water. But as darkness fell, at 10.40 p.m., a Greek Coast Guard vessel moves in, now the only ship on the scene. Three hours later, the haunting last words from the boat to the activist group Alarm Phone. Hello, my friend. The ship you send is... And the line cuts out. What happened next is likely to raise more questions as the investigations continue. Survivors tell us it was a botched attempt by the Greek Coast Guard to tow their boat that caused it to capsize.
7: They decided to throw us a rope, so the guys at the front tied it. They towed us. The boat tilted to the right and everyone was screaming. People began falling into the sea and the boat capsized. People couldn't get out from under the boat.
12: The Greek Coast Guard have declined our request for an interview, but in previous comments, they've denied towing the trawler, saying, when the boat capsized, we were not even next to it. How could we be towing it? Instead, they blamed a quote shift in weight, probably caused by panic. For years, Greek authorities have been accused of systematically and violently pushing back migrants and refugees. Video like this one released by the Turkish government captured the now well documented practice Greece denies. This deadly incident is not just about what they may have done, it's also about what they didn't do.
6: It was clear it was unseaworthy, it was clear that it is part of a, of a trafficking movement uh, from Libya to Europe. So the authorities have the responsibility to intervene, to save life.
12: As Fortress Europe hardens its immigration policies to deter some of the world's most vulnerable, this disaster will almost certainly not be the last. And Anderson, as you heard there, Greek authorities are telling us that they're continuing to investigate this incident. But the Greek Coast Guard, Greek authorities in the past, over the past few years, have been accused of violently pushing back migrants and refugees. And we've never really seen any results of investigations in the past. So the question right now is whether there should be any sort of an international independent
0: investigation. Anderson.
1: Yeah, this has been going on and on. Uh, Jemani Karashi I appreciate it. Thank you. Abby?
0: Let's turn now to CNN's Alex Marquardt. He is over in the Situation Room tonight for Wolf Blitzer. So, Alex, what do you have coming up?
1: Well, Abby, we're going to be looking at draft guidance from the FDA uh, for researchers who are looking at treating patients with psychedelic drugs. The FDA now saying that they are seeing initial promise when it comes to using these psychedelic drugs to treat things like PTSD, anxiety, substance abuse and other conditions. And we will be speaking with one of the world's foremost experts about all this. That's coming up at the top of the hour in the Situation Room, along with a lot more news. Stay with us.